Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, we have some highlights from our Indie Talks event on K-12 education in Clark County. It has been edited to just give you some of the highlights, but you can find both the written recap and the whole interview on our website or on our YouTube channel. After that, gaming reporter Howard Stutz comes on the show to talk about the culinary union suing station casinos because the company allegedly violated a new right-to-return bill that was passed in the last legislative session and aims to guarantee laid-off hospitality workers a chance to get their old job back. At the end of the show, Jacob is going to break down all of the twists and turns that led to the resignation of the Nevada System of Higher Education Chancellor, Melody Rose. And just a quick thank you to those of you who left reviews wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help the show grow, and we'll be reaching out to a winner to win some free merch uh, soon. And if you missed out on this opportunity, I'm sure we will have more opportunities coming in the near future where you can win either an Indie Matters tote bag or a shirt or a mug or something like that. So keep reviewing, and uh, thank you for all your support. Nevada Independent CEO John Ralston recently sat down with Clark County School District Superintendent Jesus Jara, Clark County Education Association Executive Director John Velardita, and high school English teacher Laura Jean Penrod during our live Indie Talks event in Las Vegas to talk about some of the most pressing issues in the school district. They covered a lot of ground during the conversation, but here are some of the highlights from our event. Suppose someone gave you a couple of minutes to tell the superintendent of schools what you and your colleagues think teachers and students need but are not getting. What would you say to him? Autonomy. I think teachers need the ability to teach what they know their students need. We standardize test them to death. We've done it for 20 years. If it was working, it would have worked already. And I think that unfortunately we spend too much time testing and less time developing skills for them that is real-world applicable. What can you tell us that you've done to fight for people like this great teacher here? What have you done? What have I done as a superintendent? One of the things that I can tell you is that for the first time in the Clark County School District, and it may not hit in the high school in ELA, we don't have the um, instructional materials. We've been able to purchase, for the first time, all our students now have a coherent curriculum in mathematics in over 10 years. Mr. Velodita, let me ask you a question. What do you hear the most? Is she representative of what you hear? Is it different? What do you hear most? What we're hearing is the system doesn't work, that the model, the delivery system that we have in place right now has deficiencies. I think the pandemic that just occurred created two opportunities for this state. On the one hand, we had an economic crash that exposed that a dependency on two industries can, you know, cause great harm to working people, let alone the economy. And then on the other hand, we had the education delivery system shut down. And those kids are never going to get back that education. But it gave us an opportunity to look at how can we do this different and more so, and this is what I would strongly suggest, is education delivery system is an integral part of this economy. So how do we align the outcome of students learning and becoming a better workforce with our economy where we can attract new industries, new businesses. So there's a future for these kids. 
The grading reform eliminates the traditional 100-point scale and instead sets 50% as the minimum grade. The policy approved by the Clark County School Board in July allows students to retake tests and prohibits behavior, late work, and attendance from being factored into grades. Mr. Superintendent, does this make any sense? Is it it working? Is it working in the first year? So let's back up because I agree. To expect a system to turn around grading practices to switch it in, in less than a year and to be 100% foolproof, no, it, it's not. I, I can tell you we have a lot of kinks. There's a lot of good things, um, but we still have to work through this. What we saw through the pandemic is that kids were performing and doing well on their academic work at the end and submitting a passing a test, but because they weren't in the classroom, then we penalized them. I want all our children to demonstrate that they've mastered their curriculum. Now, maybe what we need to do instead of not put, counting it into their academic component, maybe we need to put an effort grade. Maybe we need to put a conduct grade where we can hold kids accountable. So, so there's a balance, and, and there's things that we well, still have no to work But there is no balance, through. though, with all due respect. If you're taking out certain things that are all part of the educational experience, and Ms. Penrod referred to some of these things, where you're changing the grading scale, where you're removing things like well, late work and attendance as but, if those are not important and they can't be used. What we need to get to is a 4.0, so 1.1234, because right now, if you get a – and this is when I was a high school principal, and a kid who in, in October – has a 30%, the chances of that child to be able to recover by the end of the year mathematically is impossible. So what we're doing is that a 50% is still an F. An F is an F. Whether it's 50, 40, 30, 20, it's still an F. But that kid has an opportunity to then be able to catch up and at the end of the year be able to get out of, out of a deep hole. But then you're in October, you've really failed because you got a 20 what are the chances or what is the interest for that child to then say, I want to come to school where there is no, no opportunity to be able to recover in that classroom? Mr. Velodita, if you were to take a poll of your members, would they think that this grading reform is a good thing or a bad thing? Lowering expectations from my perspective, and I'm not an educator. In the last 10 years, I've seen the quality of the profession and the expectation of a licensed professional coming into the system get lowered and lowered. No disrespect to accomplished educators, but it's easier to become an educator, right? And there's a reason for it. There's a shortage. It's a profession that's not respected, etc. And what we're seeing also, particularly the last few years, is the expectation of outcome on student achievement. You can masquerade it any way you want has been lowered. I think we're kidding ourselves if we're we're not acknowledging that there's an effort to try to address, you know, numbers and outcomes that say we have a graduation rate or we have these proficiency levels. And it's easier to get to some of those numbers if you lower standards. I can tell you that I work with students who struggle beyond belief to comprehend material, and I have the brightest of the bright. And the same thing has come from their mouths, which is they are not motivated anymore 
by this system. They're just not. Because if we're going back to the grading portion, they're not motivated by it. Because they're not motivated because they know that it doesn't count for much, right? So all these small formative assessments don't count for much of their grade anymore. So they feel like they're constantly doing work to get to the mastery that's not counting for anything. So therefore, they don't see the value in it. But then when they do need to remediate, we've got to go back and do all those skills. In theory, I think the grade reform has good components. Yes. I don't think we should be penalizing a student um, for behavior or things like that. And should students have the opportunity to retake or remaster material? Absolutely. As an English educator, I have always allowed my students to remediate their essays, to do test corrections, because that provides that metacognition for them to be able to understand why they're not understanding the material. But when you are putting a point value on things, we have trained students to value those points. And now when they don't see much go into the grade book, if they don't do that assignment, they just kind of brush it off. And so they're not motivated themselves. My students don't not want to learn. They definitely want to be in that classroom. But at the end of the day, they have to have a motivation to sometimes be there. Like you said, kids are still kids. We still have to be the adult in the room guiding them to where they need to go. This Education Week says we're $4,000 uh, under the average per pupil mm-hmm. uh, funding. Salaries, NEA says we're 21st uh, in the country. Others show the average salary is slightly below average. Mr. Velleda, part of your job is to go up to Carson City and lobby those folks for more money for education. What's the argument when you're the guy who's saying the system essentially is broken, but give us more money? In 2019, there was legislation to reform an outdated funding formula for the state. What came with that legislation was the formation of a commission that essentially we're going to make recommendations, the statistics that you mentioned nationally, that in order for Nevada's education system to be at the national average, the national average mm-hmm. in the middle, needed two billion bucks. Nobody's going to get two billion bucks in this state in one year. So the commission made a proposal that said over a 10-year period, let's invest incrementally $200 million a year so that in 10 years we get to the national average. There's reasons for it. In part, you're not going to get $2 billion right away, but also not to disrupt the economy, et cetera, I think was part of the argument. So we're on that path. And in the last session in 2021, there was a significant amount of money that was put into this new funding formula. Clearly not enough, but a first step. And we played, I think, my organization a pretty significant role in making an argument that if you're going to pass a new funding formula, you got to begin the investment and that we embrace the, the 10-year program. And so, but we also made an argument that you have to find new or different revenue streams or allocate current revenue streams if you want to invest in education. In all of your wisdom, Mr. Valerdita, you proposed two tax petitions mm-hmm. that would have raised a billion dollars, one of one, which would have raised the gaming tax and the other would have raised the sales tax. And Good for you. You went out and got 400,000 people. So now suddenly you go up to the legislature and you get, you squeeze, you help squeeze a little bit of money out of the mining industry. And suddenly you're, let's withdraw these petitions. Let's thumb our nose at the 400,000 people who said, yeah, we need a billion dollars 
uh, to put. Why would you give up? Why are you raising the white flag? So we made it clear from the word go that when we filed our initiative petitions that we weren't wed to those revenue streams, that we wanted to force, and that's what we did, a discussion in Carson City around, are we going to adequately fund education? Jeez, they talk about that every session, so Mm -hmm. what? But they taxed mining with mining agreeing with the tax for the first time in years to go directly to K-12. I think there's most people in this room would agree that funding education last time with additional revenue from mining was the right thing to do. It's a serious question. I mean, you could have got, if those were on the ballot, you could get a lot more money, right? They could be on the ballot. That story's not over. I know, but you're trying to get rid of them. We did what we said we were going to do, and we're quite proud of it. And so if you can just tell 400,000 people who who believed in in you and what you were doing, sorry, sorry, we we made a backroom deal to get a little bit of money out of the mining industry. The billion dollars is off the table. That's the way the system should work? Uh, That's your initiative petition process in the state of Nevada. It's at the disposal of the public, we utilized it, and we'll utilize it again. And you know why? When there is no leadership at the state level to address this issue, we will help lead in finding ways to address this. We want leadership at the state level. We want electeds to make these kind of decisions. Instead of playing politics, fix the system. If they're not willing to fix the system, 400,000 people said, go do it. And we did it. So, teaching for 16 years, do I have that number right? That is correct. And you've heard about how education is underfunded and they're going to go up to Carson City. This is going to be the session. They're going to do something, (laughs) right? And you always hear from teachers, when is this money actually going to come to where I can use it? When you hear this debate and you're in the real world teaching in the classroom, what do you think? I have yet to really see the full effects in my own classroom. Um, I'm not saying that things have not improved slightly. They have. I've been through a few budget cuts, almost losing my position, those types of things. But one thing that I'd like to go back to from Mr. Bellardita is that the teacher quality has gone down. But yet, what would make a teacher in Nevada who was born and raised educated here, maybe even gone through one of our magnet programs for teaching, gone to Nevada State or UNLV to become a teacher. Why would I stay here and teach for the salary that I get here when I could go to California, get maybe 10, 20,000 more, come back and get my salary matched, and now I'm higher than the teacher who has 29 years next to me? There's no incentive to stay. All right, Jacob. Well, uh, now from one large organization in Southern Nevada to a uh, complicated history relationship between two organizations in Southern Nevada, we're talking uh, about gaming. Yeah, that's right. So gaming reporter Howard Stutz talked to you about the most recent dispute that's part of a 30-plus year feud between the Culinary Union and a casino chain that has yet to fully unionize. There's this law that was passed in the 2021 legislature that guaranteed casino workers the right to return. It was called the Right to Return Bill. And, and, and over 70 workers actually said that they weren't given their jobs back and are now suing. That's right. And um, just a note for listeners, Howard mentions both station casinos and Red Rock, but consider them interchangeable in this context. 
Yeah, and so let's hear more from uh, my discussion with Howard. Well, I am here with our senior gaming reporter, Howard Stutz. Howard, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on, Joey. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so we're talking about, we talked about this back in end of September, early October of 2021, Stations Casino and the Culinary Union and their history, but that history is continuing on (laughs) this week and it has been for a while. So what's going on with them? The Culinary is suing Stations Casino because of this coming back to work thing after the pandemic. We're here today to announce 76 hospitality workers have filed a mass action lawsuit against their current and former employer stations casinos. Explain this to me. 30 years this has been going on. The Culinary Union wants to, the bottom line is they want a union contract for their non-gaming workers at all the station casinos properties. And it's been back and forth for 30 years. Well, this week, one of the, the issue was SB 386, which was the right to return to work law that was approved by the Nevada legislature in 2021. Violations of the Nevada Hospitality and Travel Workers' Right to Return Act, or SB 386. Basically requiring employees that were laid off during the pandemic, they get right to get, go back to their jobs. And Station Casinos was opposed to the to SB 386. So what happened was this week about the culinary is backing about 76 former Station Casinos employees that are suing in district court over the fact they weren't brought back, that Station Casinos is violating the provisions of SB 386. There was one question was brought up because Station Casinos did several job fairs ahead, and all these companies did. They were doing job fairs because you've heard we've heard about the fact that it was tough to find workers after the pandemic. People mm-hmm. weren't going back to work, either afraid to. There weren't not a lot of jobs. A lot of things weren't getting filled. Station casinos did did job fairs. All these employees let station casinos know they wanted to come back to their jobs and they even went to the job fairs, and they were not hired. So now the lawsuit was filed this week. These 76 plaintiffs have had over 680 years experience combined at Stations Casinos before they were fired during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, and, and so tell me a little bit more about that lawsuit. You know, what, what's, what is in that lawsuit? What's fascinating about it is they're asking for, and under the provision, each employee could get $500 a day or would have been the time they should have been hired for. In total, if this were settled as of today, the station casinos could owe these employees a total of $10.4 million. Now, this is this is just moving forward with it. Stations is going to fight it, and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's. I mean, this history, like you said, goes 30 years. Um, just to zoom out a little bit for listeners, Culinary Union, obviously, a lot of casino workers. It's not just culinary workers and, and a major force in Las Vegas. What are the casinos and stations casinos owns? Yeah, pretty much all in Vegas. They are in the process of trying to get a property built, an Indian gaming property in California. Station Casinos has just six properties open right now. They never reopened four properties. Everybody was allowed to reopen casinos after the pandemic. They sold the Palms for $650 million to the San Manuel Indian tribe, which is probably going to open the Palms sometime in April. But three properties remain closed, Texas Station and the two Fiesta properties, one in Henderson and one in North Las Vegas. Station Casinos last month broke ground on Durango Station, which is a property they've wanted to build in the southwest portion of the valley. So basically, you've left three properties now closed, 
you know, all these employees were out of work. Now they're moving forward and building a new property. It's a long-standing feud with culinary. And remember, culinary is 60,000 employees on the strip in downtown. They said 98% of their uh, workforce was let go, you know, was let go during the pandemic. They've gotten about 80% of their members back to work. You know, they wanted to go back. That's what the right to return to work law was was written for to get people back to work as they they wanted to but these workers did not go back so we'll see what how this all plays out i don't i don't think it's it won't be quickly resolved let's put it that way is there uh, an end in sight for this <laughs> yeah there's two ways this could end with the national labor relations board all the complaints going back and forth either a contract's going to be signed they'll negotiate a contract or at some point the the union will give up which that's not going to happen a contract being signed, that's not going to happen. Or Red Rock Resorts is sold at some point, and that doesn't seem like that's going to happen. So this is just going to be in, going in per- perpetuity. And Joey, you'll probably be questioning the next gaming reporter for the Independent years from now on this issue when I when I, when I finally retire. So I just don't see an end in sight. The, the rock and the hard place issue, huh? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. All right, Howard. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Anytime, Joey. Good to be on the podcast. All right. Well, going from uh, tension, you know, kind of a a 30 year situation between uh, the culinary union and stations casinos to a uh, a deteriorating situation in higher education as the Nevada system of higher education. And she, the chancellor, Melody Rose, has stepped down after a investigation from the NSHE Board of Regents. It's a complicated situation, and Jacob, my wonderful co-host, is here to break it all down. Jacob, we haven't talked since the last segment. How's it going? <laughs> it's good to be here, Joey. All right. Well, before we get into anything, what what is the NSHE, the Nevada System of Higher Education, Board of Regents, and the Chancellor? An excellent question. So the Board of Regents, the Nevada State Constitution essentially has a clause in there that says the the state university is governed by the Board of Regents. And that ends up being a 13-member board of elected officials who serve six-year terms, and they represent big, old geographic districts elected on rotating cycles like senators are. And so they're sort of nominally in charge of these big higher ed decisions. Everything goes through them. But if you're looking at the day-to-day, that is the chancellor, right? Think of them like the president of a university, except they're the president of the entire system. And they're the one sort of working at that administrative level to make sure that things get done. Okay, Jacob, so where do you want to start with this? (laughs) I have half a mind to start at the beginning, Joey, but I won't. I will start where, where we are now, and then we'll work our way backwards. So the Board of Regents voted on a separation agreement for the chancellor that gives her about $610,000, which is about a little more than half of her remaining four-year contract and a non-disparagement clause. So neither the chancellor nor the regents can speak ill of each other now legally. That is sort of the end of this 19-month tenure for the chancellor that was at the later stages defined by her relationship with top regents because, like you mentioned, there was a workplace complaint. Okay. And so... Let's let's talk about the situation now. Melody Rose has resigned. Right. <laughs> the end. How do we get to that resignation? Okay, so this is a long and convoluted story, but I'm going to compress it as much as I can because it <laughs> really starts in the summer of 2021 because 
That is when COVID hits the Delta wave and Nevada system of higher education really starts considering how it would have to implement a COVID vaccine mandate for students. And this becomes a friction point because right around the same time, the Board of Regents elects new leaders, Kathy McAdoo and Patrick Carter. And these two leaders are much more hands-on than the previous leader. There is suddenly greater friction points as the system considers its most controversial move in years, right? So at that time, the chancellor is sort of in favor of a vaccine mandate. And the board is reticent and have been reticent for months. There are other things that happen. And if you would like to know more, you can read my reporting on the NevadaIndependent.com. But the long and short of it is by October, things deteriorate to the point that the chancellor actually files a hostile work environment complaint that alleges a raft of things, but chiefly that A, the Board of Regents discriminated against her based on her sex, that she calls it a good old boys club, says that she's paid less than the two presidents at UNR and UNLV, and generally sort of says that the, frequently she was sort of downplayed because she was a woman. And second, that the top regents were essentially conspiring to sideline her in an effort to have her fired. So, so the complaint is filed, um, and now we have this investigation, right? And the investigation, the complaint, did, did it rise to the level of sexism and harassment that, that Rose alleged? Yeah. So like you say, there, there was an investigation. It was actually outside lawyers, not related to the system of higher education at all, who took this on. And after about four months, they come back and deliver a report, and they say there's just insufficient evidence that there's actually any legal claims of sex discrimination here. So they can't find any evidence that that's the case. For instance, right, that she, she alleges that she's paid less than the president's. Well, all chancellors are paid less than the president's, including male chancellors, both Tom Riley before her and his predecessor, Dan Claych, also paid less than the president's. Also, both Riley and Claych were paid less than she was. So that's that's sort of like the through line of these complaints. That being said, the investigation lays out a workplace that is increasingly divided, increasingly factionalized, such that the chancellor starts to view any pushback to any of her policies as retaliation against her, in part because she filed this complaint back in October. So by the time we get to December, January, February, things have deteriorated pretty far. And so, Jacob, certain donors and groups of supporters uh, in, in higher education are, are framing this as kind of a dysfunction among regents and that there needs to be an overhaul of the board. What do you what do you make of that? That's a fair question, because a lot of the supporters of the chancellor have been the same people who for years have argued that the regents are an ineffectual board who don't do the system any good by existing and have been trying in various ways to reform that board. Eagle-eyed listeners may remember question one in 2020 that would have removed the board of regents from the Constitution. A lot of the same people who were supporting question one supported the chancellor. Now that the chancellor is gone, we're seeing these same people sort of make the argument that the chancellor's departure, A, they thought the chancellor was good, and B, because she's gone, this is yet more evidence that the board needs to be reformed. And I should say, for reference, question one actually failed in 2020 by a very narrow margin. We do know what these people want, and that's sort of not elected regents, but appointed regents, regents who come from the governor. We have regents who perhaps have less power. We have a system that relies perhaps more on what we call public-private partnerships, right? That there's a deeper connection between private industry and philanthropy and the public system of higher education. We've seen a lot of allusions to making our system look like California or making our system look like Arizona State University. These are very complicated conversations, and these proponents are philanthropists. They're business communities. So you're looking at the Vegas 
U.S. Chamber of Commerce. We're looking at the AFL-CIO. And they, for a long time, have had a vision for what higher education in Nevada ought to look like. And now the resignation of this chancellor is becoming yet another chapter and the disagreements between regents and these proponents over sort of what governance should be in Nevada. So how does this affect NSHE, the Nevada system of higher education, more broadly? What does this mean for students? Well, that's the real million-dollar question, isn't it? I guess $610,000 question. <laughs> um, so I don't think we know yet. The system has had a long history of this sort of top-level dysfunction. Chancellor Rose is not the first chancellor to resign under tension with the Board of Regents. And I think it's very difficult to say where they go from here. Critics of the board have sort of seized on this. They say Chancellor Rose uh, was actually good for the system and she's been forced out because of interpersonal issues and that this does not look good for the Board of Regents. There are even members of the Board of Regents who say that. Regent Kathy Del Carlo has been a vocal supporter of the chancellor. And last Friday, she said she was ashamed to be a regent. She said, that this was a travesty and that she made this argument, who is going to want this job now that we've forced Melody Rose out? On the other side, there are regents who are glad she's gone. There are regents who frankly did not like her very much and they did not like her leadership style. And they thought that she had overstepped her bounds and was trying to act with power that the chancellor did not have. They don't maybe enjoy the fact that they had to deal with this $610,000 payout, but at least this saga is over. And now I think the question of what happens next is an interesting one, because I don't think we really know. At a baseline, the Board of Regents will continue. All those regents are still there. They will continue making policy, and there will be an officer in charge until there is an interim chancellor, and then we will see what happens next. All right, Jacob, well, thank you for breaking down this months-long saga of what's going on with the Board of Regents and higher education and the chancellor. We'll have to see where it goes from here, but I appreciate it, and I'll talk to you in about 10 seconds in the outro. I will see you, Joey, in 10 seconds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Laura Jean Penrod, Jesus Jara, John Bellardita, John Ralston, and Howard Stutz for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, letters of appreciation for the effort we put into these end-of-episode notes that no one ever makes it to, and if you do, we love you, or whatever else is on your mind, at joey at com or jacob at com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. We're talking uh, about gaming. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So gaming reporter. Okay, I had it. I was going. Sorry.